3: or text WONDERYPOD Pod to 500 500.
4: I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. We like to celebrate people of remarkable talent and accomplishment whenever we can. People who are aiming high. And in all the world of competitive sport, we're hard-pressed to think of anyone aiming higher than the man Lee Cowan will be introducing us to.
5: Maybe you're not a fan of archery, but it's impossible not to be a fan of Matt Stutzman who's risen to the highest rankings in the sport, despite lacking two very important things. So how
6: did you figure it out? So, ironically, I googled how to teach an armless man how to shoot a bow. (laughs) Not a lot of results. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing.
5: (laughs) The athlete who calls himself the Armless Archer, ahead on Sunday morning.
4: We'll take note this morning of the seemingly never-fading popularity... Of Jeff Lynn's Electric Light Orchestra. You can count David Pogue among its fans.
7: Magic,
4: all After 30 years
7: away, Jeff Lynn's Electric Light Orchestra is back. I,
5: I went to the concert with my family and
0: The place was packed, and people were screaming and singing along and dancing.
8: I was there as well.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Meet the man behind ELO, ahead on Sunday morning.
4: Three years ago, this coming Saturday, an arrest in the college town of Oberlin, Ohio, triggered demonstrations, boycotts, and a lawsuit that asked what price... Is a family's reputation worth? An issue Ted Koppel will explore.
9: No justice! No peace! No justice! No No peace!
8: A petty crime, charges of racism, and a controversy that lingers to this day.
10: It had taken generations to build this reputation for us. And in just one day, we we had lost it.
8: Which raises a fair question. What is a fair price for a family's reputation? Ahead on Sunday morning.
4: With Nancy Giles, we'll be visiting best-selling author Mitch Album, a unique family man whose charitable work in Haiti has changed any number of lives, including his own. For the
2: last 10 years, Mitch Album has spent four days a month with his kids at the
11: Half-Faith Haiti Mission. Janine and I didn't have kids, and suddenly we have 47 kids. Probably somewhere in between 0 and 47 is the average and normal desired size, but that's okay. I like having 47 kids.
9: Count on
10: me.
11: Now he's written a new book about one of those kids, a very
2: special little girl, Finding Chica, later on Sunday morning.
4: Connor Knighton gets us into an art show truly like none other, even its name stands out, Meow Wolf. With Mo Rocca, we'll launch a new season of Mobituaries. Steve Hartman shares a very special love story. And more, all coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. <laughs> Aiming high is the goal of any participant in a competitive sport, But few have had to reach further than the man Lee Cowan has been watching in action.
5: You're looking at one of the top-ranked archers in the country, 36-year-old Matt Stutzman of Fairfield, Iowa.
6: The last time we looked into it, 1% of archers in the world make a living shooting a bow. He's not bragging. He's really just that good. And he has the accolades to prove it. January of 2010 is when I decided to be the best archer in the world. And by 2011, I had already made the U.S. team. And by 2012, I went to my first games. And won them. And won a silver, right? And he did it all with his feet.
5: Yep, one of the most celebrated archers in the world was born without arms.
6: When it first started, it was like, look at this guy without arms. And now it's like, ugh. That's
5: here. His competitors have learned to fear him. Not only those at the Paralympic Games in London, where he won his silver medal, but also able-bodied archers that he's bested time and time again.
6: Wow. So that was like my first... Number one in the world. Number one in the
5: world. So, just how does he do it? Because you basically just had to figure this all out. There's no manual for this. No, no. (laughs) His only adaptation is a strap around his chest, which he uses to pull the bowstring
6: back. At this point, I'm adjusting my strap to make sure it's in the same place. That way, when I draw the bow back, I push my leg away from my chest. I bring my right shoulder up and I set it. Bring my face under my release. And then I shoot. That is so amazing. (laughs) If I can take a bow that's not modified for me, and I can compete against people that have arms and beat them at their own sport, well, then... What's everybody else's excuse? This is where I come back for the tiebreaker.
5: Matt's pretty easy to spot at a tournament. He's usually the only one sitting
6: down. He knows he's the center of attention, and believe it or not, he actually likes it that way. For me, I'm used to being looked at all the time, right? For most archers who are able-bodied have never had that experience, so when it's time to make it count, then they get nervous where I don't get the nervousness like they do. Because I've been in this situation my whole life. In case you can't tell already, this single
5: father of three certainly doesn't consider himself disabled at all. Are there times, though, that you just wish he had arms? No. Really? Not once. No. Now, you might find that surprising, but he's serious. When we went out to lunch, eating with his feet was as ordinary as anything.
6: Right. To him. I can hold my fork, and I just stab, and... Dunk <laughs> and eat. Back at his house, we watched him
5: change a tire. It was pretty hard not to offer help, but the fact was, he really didn't need it.
6: I call this a unicorn.
5: Why? He is a car nut. He always has been. It's a Nissan with the new Corvette engine
6: in it. He can outdrive just about anyone. Yep, with his feet. So right now, my right foot is on the steering wheel, and my left foot runs the gas and the brake. And none of this is modified for you? Nope. This is uh, completely just like anybody can drive this car.
5: Well, not exactly. At least, not the way he drives it, doing donuts in a parking lot and all.
6: I even um, have a motorcycle permit. Are you serious? Absolutely. I can legally ride an unmodified motorcycle with my friends.
10: It all
5: started right after Matt was born, when his birth parents learned something had
6: gone wrong. Based on what the doctors told them, that was too much for them. They were just overwhelmed. They were just overwhelmed.
5: So they put Matt up for adoption. He was just two months old. And not long after that, Gene and Leon Stutzman entered his life. So do you remember the first time you saw him?
4: Oh, yes. <laughs> well Here was this little curly-head, blonde-head guy, and he just kind of sat up and like, well, here I am.
8: <laughs> and so he you know, picked up the little guy, and he was just cute, a little stinker. Fell in love immediately, I guess.
5: They raised him along with their seven other children, just like any other kid. But were there times when you'd see him doing something like riding a motorcycle or something, and you'd just look <laughs> out the window and say, oh, my God. <laughs>
4: How? <laughs> Please protect him. <laughs> <laughs> that's
8: when he went into double prayer
5: time. <laughs> they gave Matt prosthetic limbs at one point, but they sat on his shelf most of the time. So they decided not to really modify anything in their home.
8: We decided not to do anything just because he's not going to live in a handicapped world. He's going to live in a world where people he expect... He has to adapt. He has to adapt to those kind of things. And so that's kind of the way our philosophy that we took... Is figure it out.
4: I don't think it was an orchestrated thing. It was just kind of, he'll find his way. He'll figure it out.
5: And he did. But as Matt got older, despite his abilities and his willingness to try anything, there weren't
6: many willing to give him a try. Couldn't find a job. No one would give you a chance? No. Like, I, I even went to try to do a typing job because <laughs> I was that desperate to try to figure out something. So what was your mindset at that point? I was pretty depressed, you know? supposed to be a man taking care of your kids, and nobody would give me a chance to prove myself.
5: It was 2009, at the height of the financial crisis. But it also happened to be deer season in Iowa. He thought if he could just teach himself how to shoot a bow, maybe he could at least bag a deer
6: and feed his family. I went up and bought the cheapest bow I could find. And I actually went out that year and shot a deer, I'm now excited about life again because I had just set a goal, went out and accomplished putting food on the table.
5: To earn a little extra cash, he started entering target shooting competitions where one bow maker actually asked to sponsor him. Pretty exciting, right? It was until a friend of
6: Matt's told him why. Then he goes, Matt, the reason why they sponsor you is because you have no arms and you draw attention to their product and it's not because you're good. Well wow. The reality was is I wasn't that good. And I didn't want to be known as, like, the sideshow or the guy who gets stuff because he has no arms. I wanted to be known as the best archer in the world. That's where it clicked for And too. that's where it clicked for me. I'm like, hey, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. I'm going to show them that I am the best and that I deserve sponsorship because I'm the best, not because I'm unique or different.
5: Matt's aiming for a spot at the 2020 Paralympic Games in Tokyo next summer. And while he says a gold would sure be nice, that's not all he's after
6: anymore. I started archery just to provide for my family, right? But now I've seen it's much bigger. So when someone with a disability comes up to me saying they saw me do this or that, and now they can do that, then it makes me feel good about myself. Yeah, that must be really It's like a, yeah, the feeling is... It's almost better than winning. Like, what is defining of the best archer in the world? The best archer in the world is somebody who changes the sport, makes it better, or changes people that watch make them better. In my mind, that's considered the best archer in the world.
4: Mitch Albom is more than just a best-selling author. He's also quite a family man with 47 kids and one very special memory. Here's Nancy Childs. Line up, line up.
2: The first day of school at the Have Faith Haiti Mission in Port au Prince.
1: Miss Patty's going to pick a name.
2: Oh. New backpacks.
1: Yeah. Are you going to take care of it all year? Yes.
2: New school uniforms. New teachers. Are you ready for school? Yes. And at the center of it all, Mitch Album. Yep, that Mitch Album the guy who wrote Tuesdays with Maury, and lots of other bestsellers.
11: Oh, your backpack is so big, we can put you inside it.
2: Straightening backpacks,
11: giving pep talks,
2: and doing whatever needs doing to get the school year off to a good start. So 10 years ago, when you first came to Haiti, did you plan to run an orphanage?
11: (laughs) (laughs) So you're starting with the funny question. Hey,
2: you know... We sat down with Mitch and his wife, Janine, in late August.
11: I didn't even know where Haiti was on a map. I was moved by what happened in the earthquake.
2: It's been almost 10 years since that terrible earthquake devastated Haiti, killing over 100,000 people and leaving millions more injured and homeless. Like so many others, Mitch Album wanted to help.
11: And we landed just a few weeks after the earthquake. You saw people missing arms and legs walking around and covered in white dust. And then here was this little oasis where there were these kids. Kids huddled in an orphanage. I saw kids sleeping on the ground here. I didn't even know if they had parents. Makeshift foam mattresses, not eating anything. He flew home to Detroit, but... I couldn't leave it alone. I couldn't get it out of my head. I mean, there were no toilets, really. There was no shower. There was no real kitchen to speak of. And, and so I said, well, I live in Detroit. You know, we do things with our hands in Detroit. And I put a call out. Twenty-three
2: people answered the call.
11: They called themselves the Detroit Muscle Crew. Love it. Little T-shirts. We built the first real toilets, showers, kitchen, dining area. Okay, get under the. I was here for the first shower. I'll never forget that. They didn't know what it was. I said, are you ready? Yeah, yeah. We turned the water on, and the water came down. It was like witnessing the Lord's first rainstorm. They went nuts with glee and water. And then they started doing this dance, singing and dancing, pushing off the walls.
9: That makes hard.
2: Now the children of the mission have daily classes. In English and French. They study music and science and math. What's your favorite part of school? Science. Science! I love that. They have regular medical checkups, three healthy meals a day, and a lot of big Freestyle. dreams. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be
9: a doctor and a writer. A surgeon. I want to be a lawyer. I want to study business. I want to be a businessman. Mm
4: -hmm. I want to be a
2: veterinarian.
1: Really? I love animals. And I want to be a Chinese translator.
2: When Jane Pauley visited with Mitch Albom five years ago in Detroit, he was spending four days every month with his kids in Haiti. He still does. But something has changed since then a little girl named Chica arrived. Was she special from the very beginning?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Chica, I remember... A spark. You know, most of the kids are yeah. shy and they'll over their eyes and everything, and Chica just sat back and...
11: Yeah, shut so him I, looked, out. I looked at her... It was her like yes And I went... And she went... And then I laughed, and then she laughed, and I said, well, I've met my match.
2: <laughs> but when Chica was five, the director noticed something was wrong. Her eye drooped. They found the one MRI scanner in all
11: of Haiti and got this report. The child has a mass on her brain. We don't know what it is, but whatever it is, there's nobody in Haiti who can help her. And that was basically our clarion call to say, she's going to have to come to America. And that changed everything for you guys. It changed everything.
9: Count on me on one, two, three.
2: Mitch and Janine took little Chica into their home and into their hearts.
11: All of a sudden, it was Chica, and she was there.
8: You put your
0: right
2: hand For two years, together, they battled DIPG, a rare pediatric brain tumor. <laughs> and they laughed and danced and sang and became a family.
10: I
7: am a child. Oh, God.
11: And it was a glorious blessing. And she
7: wasn't the perfect child, but
2: she was perfect for us. She really
11: was. just capturing you forever.
2: A journey Mitch Album has written about in his new book, Finding Chica.
11: Families are like pieces of art. You can make them from almost anything, any kind of material. And sometimes they look like you and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they come from your DNA and sometimes they don't. And the only ingredient you need to make a family is love. Unconditional love. Chica died at age
2: seven, but her story continues. The proceeds from
11: Mitch Album's book will build a new earthquake-proof school for all their other children. Janine and I didn't have kids, and suddenly we have 47 kids. Probably somewhere in between zero and forty-seven is the average and normal desired size, but that's okay. I like having forty-seven kids.
0: So I just listened to
11: Mitch song. and Janine's
2: two oldest kids, Mano and Sam, are now sophomores at Madonna University. Is it named after Madonna the singer? No, no. Not not at all. It's in Detroit, where Mitch can still give them pep talks, as he did in Haiti.
6: Every single time he came he always talked about college with me and this pushed me and it's like, okay, okay. Um and maybe I can do it really
2: Mano's dream is to become a doctor.
6: I want to go back to Haiti. Seeing kids, you know, in the industry just living on the floor, and, it, and this breaks me, but I'm kind of giving me strength to go hard and, and to do whatever I can here.
2: Did Mitch and Janine, did they change because of their relationship with Chica and their relationship with you guys at the orphanage? Yeah. Yes. Um, Tell me a little bit about it.
9: They could see the change they really like. They show us, they really like to show us love.
3: Love is all that I can give to you.
2: At the close of every day, more Mitch Album's kids remember Chica what by singing her favorite song.
6: To, every day we sing this song just to remember her and to keep her here in our eyes.
11: She's taught a lot of kids here what they need to do with their lives and how precious life is. She taught me when I had to carry her from place to place towards the end of her life. We were sitting and coloring. I looked at my watch. I jumped up. I said, Chica, I got to go. She said, no, stay in color. I said, Chica, I have to work. This is my job. And she crossed her arms the way that she always did, and she said, no, it isn't. Your job is carrying me.
10: <laughs> like
11: that. Well, of course it is. Of course that's my job. My, my job was to carry her, and my job is to carry them. <laughs>
3: Terms apply.
4: No deeper love can be imagined than the one enjoyed all too briefly by one very devoted couple. Steve Hartman has their story. Thank you all for coming to this special occasion.
12: Deep in New York's Adirondack Mountains, friends and family gathered to help 59 year old Chris Sharoon DeForge pay tribute to her remarkable husband.
7: Your marriage to Paul was one for the history books.
12: What did you love about him?
9: Yeah, His sense of humor. He got me laughing and everything. <laughs> he was the one for me. That's him? That's me and my party.
12: Chris and Paul met in 1988. And after dating five years, they became one of the first couples in the world with Down syndrome to get married.
9: I proposed to him.
12: You proposed to him? Yes.
9: I'm just putting Would you marry me? And he looked up with me with his big, beautiful smile. He shook his head yes. What's
2: on the menu for tonight?
12: But Chris's sister, Susan Sharoon, says it took a lot more than yes to get them to I do. There were marriage classes, counseling sessions, and a whole lot of pushback from supposedly able-minded people.
10: Yeah, there really
7: was quite a bit of resistance. There was a feeling that it was like children getting married versus two you know, very capable adults.
12: Today, people with Down syndrome who want to get married still face resistance. There's still some question as to whether couples like Chris and Paul love as deeply as the rest of us. And in fact, we saw evidence that maybe they don't, that maybe their love is deeper.
7: Thanks to you and Paul, everyone here has seen what true love looks like.
12: At the end of the ceremony... Beautiful. Chris spread a portion of her husband's ashes near the lake where he loved to fish.
7: Yes, you love him so much.
12: The rest will be mixed with hers one day and buried together.
7: You were the best wife any husband could ever have.
12: It was an intensely intimate moment. Shared with you today for a reason
7: what i hope is that other families will entertain this you know other people will recognize the importance of this kind of you know intimate love people like us need to have a chance
12: chance at what
9: a chance to find the man of your dreams like i did
12: are you going to be able to be happy again
9: to be honest i don't know i just lost the man that i love but I'm to try.
12: And even if she doesn't succeed, Chris says it's still far better to have loved and lost than to be told you can
8: never love at all.
4: What price do you put on a family's reputation? Just one of the questions raised by the arrest of an Oberlin college student on November 9th, 2016. Here's our senior contributor, Ted Koppel.
8: Relax. The initial confusion, recorded here on a police body camera, bordered at times on chaos. Why? Why are you arresting me? White cop, black suspect. A scene many of us might be tempted to process through our own personal bias. Why do you think you're you're going to die? Because I'm scared of police. I'm a black man in custody of a police really? car. I've never, had. I've never been to the back of a police car. At court, roughly nine months later, the young man, a student at Oberlin College in Ohio, received a reduced sentence after pleading guilty to attempted theft, essentially confirming the police report of what had happened.
10: I happened to be at the store that evening uh, with my son, Alan, and... Uh, A young man came in.
8: David Gibson is one of the owners of Gibson's Bakery. His son, Alan, was at the cash register when the student tried to buy a bottle of wine.
10: My son confronted him and would not accept uh, the, the false ID, realized it was a fake ID as well, but realized that he was also trying to steal two bottles of wine. And at that point, he denied him the sale, He attempted to take a picture of him with his phone. At that point, the young man took his phone and shoved it in his face, and he was able to run out of the store.
8: And then what happened?
10: My son and I both pursued. My son's quite a bit faster than I am at this age. And he, uh, outside of the store, tried to detain him by hugging him, and uh, then he fell to the ground, and I witnessed all of this. And then we had multiple people uh, come in and start uh, hitting
8: my son.
9: And he comes running out of nowhere and tackles him no. and shoves him against
8: the- But there is sister. an alternate like, oh, version of events.
9: And then you guys came and arrested them instead of the person who just assaulted it, this kid for no reason. Talk. And we all, he saw yeah. it, there were like three more people inside yeah. who saw it and we can all testify that that is what happened.
8: The police weren't buying that version, but David Gibson knew the trouble was brewing.
0: We're not going off of what they're saying. We're um, we're charging him with robbery. We're gonna, um, we're gonna so be,
10: they're going to be trashing us.
0: Yeah.
2: Justice, no peace, no justice.
8: It wasn't long coming. The next morning, in fact. No
2: justice. No peace. No justice. No peace. No justice. No peace. No justice. No peace.
8: Oberlin is one of the most liberal college campuses in the country. And remember, Donald Trump had just been elected president the previous day. Totally unrelated to what had happened at Gibson's Bakery, but it does help explain the mood.
1: We are here today because yesterday, three students from the Africana community were assaulted and arrested as a result of a history of racial profiling and racial discrimination by Gibson. Bakery located twenty three west college
8: street which is where generations of Gibson's yes sir had been running the bakery for more than a hundred years you had been branded as racist and you felt that was unjust unfair untrue
10: absolutely to us that was critical our feeling is that that's what you have in life is your reputation it had taken Generations to build this reputation for us. And in just one day, we had, uh, we had lost it.
8: That damage to their uh, just, uh, reputation has led sure. to what the Gibsons claim is a 50% loss of business. When the college refused to issue a statement exonerating the family of racism, the Gibsons filed a lawsuit.
6: And I think... For me, when I'm looking at this as somebody who's been covering it since the lawsuit was filed, the questions at hand are no longer about shoplifting and no longer about whether students shoplifted. So,
8: Nathan Carpenter is editor-in-chief of the college paper, the Oberlin Review.
6: It's about whether students were, you know, in the right to say what they said during the initial protests uh, and whether the college was, is on the hook.
8: That is precisely the point. And last June, a local jury found Oberlin College on the hook for $44 million in damages.
3: The jury said that the school helped defame the business.
8: The court has since reduced the award to $31.5 million, and Oberlin College has appealed that judgment. So the fundamental questions remain. Were the students justified in exercising their freedom of speech? And why is Oberlin responsible for what they said? I think the response to that is, let students be students, but don't aid and abet, support, or encourage them when they're clearly doing something reckless. That's Lee Placus, who was lead attorney in the Gibsons' lawsuit against Oberlin. If he and his clients ever collect... 6.5 million dollars have been allocated to legal costs. They try to characterize this as a protest. I think they turned it into a party to appease the the students. They ordered pizza, used college funds to order pizza for the demonstrators. They used college fund for food and drinks and refreshments. They used college funds to buy gloves to make sure that the protesters' uh, hands will not get cold. I raised some of those issues with Carmen Twilley Ambar, who was not then but is now president of Oberlin College. Maybe what was before the jury was that the college administration did nothing to ameliorate the demonstration, did nothing to calm the students down, if anything. They appeared to be supportive of the demonstration, without, at that time, knowing the facts.
9: I don't think that's factually accurate. I think that did they
8: did they know the facts at the time? The
9: college didn't know the fact, but it's not true that the college supported the demonstration. Well, let's take let's
8: take each of the sort of individual charges that were made against the college: Um, the handing out, the purchasing, and handing out. Of gloves,
9: The college didn't pass out gloves and didn't hand out gloves. Oh, well, the
8: college didn't, but uh, people representing the college did.
9: The college disputes those facts, that it handed out gloves.
8: Where the did college the gloves disputes, come
9: from? The, well, the college disputes handing out gloves.
8: Factually correct, but still misleading. A student bought the gloves, but only after sending this email requesting reimbursement to Meredith Raimondo, the Dean of Students, Hi, read the email. If I bought $75 to $100 more worth of gloves to bring to the protest, would it be possible to get reimbursed? And the reply from Dean Ramondo: yes, bring the receipt to 105 Monday. Thanks for helping folks stay warm.
1: The evidence showed there was a receipt that they paid for the pizza. It was a text, it was with a pseudo council so can we get gloves? And Meredith was like, yes. Whatever. Meredith
8: was the dean of students? Yes. Meredith Raimondo? Yes. Yeah. Misty Smith Misty was yes. one of the jurors. You were personally convinced and the other jurors were convinced that the college supported the students
1: 100%. 100%. They supported them.
8: The jury found, unanimously, that the college also helped students put out and distribute a defamatory flyer which described Gibson's Bakery as, quote, a racist establishment with a long account of racial profiling and discrimination, end quote. The college suspended its daily order for bagels and donuts from the bakery. Now, of course, there are huge sums of money hanging in the balance, but to this day, the president of Oberlin makes allusions to a pattern of racist behavior, if not the specific incident that set things off three years ago.
9: Well, the students pled guilty to shoplifting. Um, there has been some debate about whether it was shoplifting or a false ID. Um, well, it, it was both. Right. Well, I think that that one of the things that the college has always said is that the college has not doesn't condone shoplifting, doesn't condone bad behavior by its students in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what led up to the protest, and I think that's sort of kind of the core issue here, was some series of things that happened before, um, some perspectives about people's experiences in the well, store. Tell,
8: tell me about tell me about those then, right. which and and be specific. Right. What, what specific incidents are you referring to that happened before?
9: Right, I, well, I think that the specific incidents would be um, the perception by faculty and students and staff and other people in the town that there had been disparate treatment um, with respect to people of color in the store. The way I would phrase it, kind of different lived experiences. And
0: this is all uh, basically anecdotal evidence that people, people... Dave uh, O'Brien
8: uh, covered the trials for the local paper, the Chronicle-Telegram. People
0: commenting on uh, on social media saying, I had a, uh, I, I, I felt I felt uncomfortable in there. I felt like I was targeted because of the color of my skin.
8: David's father, Alan Gibson, is 91. Back in 2017, six months after the protests, and this may or may not have been related, someone came to his house in the middle of the night. Gibson came out of the house, tripped, and broke his neck.
10: At that point, when he was in the hospital, and we didn't know whether he was going to make it or not. Hmm. He had said to me that uh, he had done everything right in his life. Treated everybody equally and fairly.
8: Pardon me and that he would die being called a racist that was dave gibson's testimony at trial and the impact on the jury was pretty much what you'd expect
1: he didn't want to pass away and on there people thinking that he was racist and you just feel the heart like the whole courtroom just went you know like that everyone i think was trying to hold back tears
8: What the jury did not know, because it wasn't admitted at trial, is that Dave Gibson himself is battling pancreatic cancer.
1: Like, it was very hard, because you think, then you're doing a self-reflection, like, of yourself. How would you feel?
8: What is a reputation worth? You're a very distinguished academic. What's your reputation worth?
9: My reputation is important. It's worth a lot, isn't it?
8: I mean, if your reputation was destroyed overnight, you could hardly put a price on that, could you?
9: Well, I certainly believe that reputations are important. But here's what's also true, and it's the jury system that we have, right, and the legal system that we have, um, that we go through a legal process that makes that determination. And what the institution has said is that we believe that this determination was excessive. Right.
8: Freedom of speech does not grant a license to libel, but there are real concerns that the size of this award, $31.5 million, could undermine genuine freedom of speech on college campuses and ultimately the unanswerable question, what is the fair price for a family's good name? David Gibson in the terminal stages of pancreatic cancer may never learn the answer.
4: Joe Ricketts is author of a new book called The Harder You Work, The Luckier You Get. He ought to know. He's founder and former CEO of the financial firm Ameritrade. And as you're about to discover, no surprise, he's a true believer.
13: Are we headed into a recession? You can't pick up a newspaper without seeing that question. I've been involved in the financial market since the Stone Age, and while I don't have a crystal ball, I can tell you with 100% certainty, a recession is coming. Maybe not today or tomorrow, but it's coming. Economies go through recessions periodically. I don't think this one will be deep or long, as I've never worked in such a strong economy. The thing is, with all this talk of recession, we're taking our eye off the ball that really matters. We're amazingly engaged in a philosophical battle over our economic system. Free enterprise has come to be seen as the province of the conservatives while liberals praise something more like socialism. My progressive liberal friends worry that free enterprise is unfair, producing inequality. Now, there are real issues of fairness to be addressed, but these folks talk as if there will always be a big pot of money, and the only question is how to divide it. But where does that pot come from? It comes from a growing economy and job opportunities, the things new businesses create. It comes from free enterprise. I discovered this for myself when I founded my own business with $12,500, most of it borrowed. A partner and I saw a chance to offer customers a better deal on stock trades, and over 45 years, that company grew into what is now TD Ameritrade. It handles $1.3 trillion in client assets, and it employs 10,000 people, all of whom have good jobs and contribute to our economy. None of that would have happened without a robust free enterprise system. We need to change the conversation we're having about the American economy. And in our homes, we should teach our children that if they want good jobs, some of them will need to start the businesses that create those jobs. In our schools, we should teach critical thinking and the importance of finding your opportunities and taking your risk. You don't repair a car by throwing out the engine. Free enterprise is the engine of success for us all.
4: It's time to get dead serious. Mobituaries, the podcast from our own Moraka is launching another season. Turns out writing about the dead is big business. And as Mo will tell us, its practitioners occasionally live it up.
7: America is full of cons these days. There's Comic-Con.
5: I think bushier eyebrows are better for Santa. Santa-Con. Ladies and gentlemen, Grumpy Cat.
7: Cat-Con. Even balloon artists get together.
11: So now you want to match that side to this side.
7: And then there's ObitCon, filled with a lively bunch of obituary writers, readers, and even a funeral director. Um, we all have
12: to deal with deadlines. I you know, hate to use that term, but I'm very careful to never tell a family that I have to meet a deadline You know, right after they've experienced a death. These members of
7: SPOW, you know, the Society of Professional Obituary Writers are dead serious when it comes to their craft. The demand has never been higher for quality stories ready at a moment's notice. Obits matter. You all matter. Adam Bernstein is the obituary editor for the Washington Post.
0: You get to write about everything in humanity. You're not just writing about business. You're not just writing about politics. You're not just writing about uh, uh, movies. You're doing it
7: all. The obit desk used to be a graveyard, a dumping ground for reporters who'd come to the end of the line. But now it's thriving, and the revenue from paid death notices is the lifeblood of struggling newspapers across the country.
8: Passed on, joined God's heavenly choir, or my favorite, the
10: lights went out.
7: Longtime obit writers Kay Powell, formerly of the Atlanta Journal Constitution, and John Pope of the New Orleans Times Picayune are fluent in the euphemisms used to eulogize the dead. Uh,
4: uh, lady friend
7: means well, whore, or prostitute, or <laughs> raconteur is a boring storyteller. A raconteur uh, is a boring storyteller? Yes. In an obituary, yes. Raucous. Raucous yeah. means loud drunk. ObitCon has no red carpet, but it does hand out awards. Best long-form obituary. The Grimmies, not the Grammys, are in the shape of a tombstone. This year, Tom Hawthorne from the Canadian newspaper The Globe and Mail won the Lifetime Achievement Grimmie.
0: I used to be embarrassed to write obits from that newsroom culture that it was for the drunks and the losers and the kids starting out. And then you realize, no, this is where the stories are. Um, so, thank you. I'm deeply honored. And I was honored to be this year's
7: special guest at ObitCon. When you read a well-written obituary, it is sort of like, I think, like a like a movie trailer for an Oscar-winning biopic. It's sort of the highs, the lows, and the sweep of it, it's kind which of like brings us to, to mobituaries. Sunday morning's original podcast series, paying tribute to the people and things that never got the send-off they deserved. In our brand new second season, we'll tell you the story
13: of... I made it clear with the Libyan representatives from the very beginning that I had no influence with the United States government or with the President of the United States.
7: A presidential brother so famous he had his own beer.
13: When you say, give me a Billy, you got yourself Billy Carter's hand-picked favorite. Just say, give me a Billy.
7: (laughs) Thomas died and his bones were sold and scattered. We'll say goodbye again to a forgotten founding father with an original production number. Tonight we shall sing your
3: name again.
11: I drink to Thomas,
4: Paine.
10: Don't do anything foolish.
7: Plus the story of the first Chinese-American superstar and the 1980s pop star whose hit song brought glory to a 2019 sports team. First up is our mobit on presidential brother Billy Carter. Younger brother of President Jimmy Carter, as you'll hear Jane, he was a lot more than the caricature many of us remember. For this episode, I talked to the former president. He remembers his brother affectionately and candidly.
4: Why do I have the feeling there's more?
7: I thought you'd never ask. Mobituaries is available wherever you get your podcasts. It's easy and free to subscribe.
4: I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next Sunday morning.
0: If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music.